Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's weekly research podcast. I'm Patrick Gower and today I'm joined by Wealth Report editor Andrew Shirley and deputy editor Flora Harley. Thank you, Flora and Andrew, for joining me. This week, I've got my hands on the 15th annual edition of the Wealth Report. It covers everything from why the global response to the pandemic has supported the wealthy, to inequality and the fate of cities as the world emerges from the worst of the crisis. And I want to stay with cities first, Andrew. We're seeing New York easing some restrictions. You can go to the movies or or go out for dinner in LA as of this weekend, I think. But for many of these places, for many of these institutions, it's already too late. We've seen so many particularly across leisure, places shut permanently. You did a lot of work in this wealth report on the outlook for cities. What did you learn? Um, Thanks, Patrick. I mean, for those businesses that have been hit by the pandemic in cities, it's obviously been catastrophic. But as we discussed with a cities expert, Saskia Sassen, in the wealth report, you know, there's so much entrepreneurship and innovation in cities. They will adapt to this and they they will change, as Saskia points out. I mean, cities have had to manage through very tough times in the past, invasions, wars, plagues, all of these sorts of things, but actually come out stronger. What we're going to see, I think, is a period of reinvention in terms of the 15-minute city, which a lot of people are talking about now. I think people won't be able to take stuff for granted. Restaurants will have to look at the way people want to eat. Even very high-end restaurants are doing takeout services for their clients. So, it won't be the same, but there will be lots of opportunities. We're already seeing new restaurant groups investing into new properties within city centres, and perhaps a decrease in rents might make some of those businesses more viable. The 15-minute cities is an interesting concept. So the idea, obviously, that you can walk to everything you need within 15 minutes of your front door. But if you believe everyone has three days a week in a central business district, how does that work? I think we're going to see a lot more flexible working. You may be going into the office, but that may not be a head office in the centre of London or wherever. It might be a sort of co-working space near where you where you live. You might go into your head office once a month for a team meeting, but you might work from other places at other times. So we're going to we're going to be seeing a completely new approach to working. I think, uh, Flora, I want to talk to you about uh, inflation. Uh, in the wealth report, we talk about the fiscal support, lower rates, pushing asset prices higher, and all of that has supported the wealthy. But we are now seeing policymakers concerned about the prospects of inflation. What does that mean for government servicing deficits, you know, that are quite large, never mind just debts? The whole inflation debate at the moment is seeming very one-sided. The media are either saying we'll see that low inflation or supercharged inflation, whereas realistically, a lot of the central banks are coming out and saying that they're not too worried about it in the near term. Uh, Andrew Bailey said, yes, they're preparing for potentially negative interest rates on one side, but looking at policy for rising inflation and rising rates on the other side, but neither of those are the baseline. And Jay Powell has committed the Fed to the longer term outlook and saying that there's not huge amounts of risk because it's a long way to go until we hit that full employment level. So we've seen a lot in the market recently with yields rising, but that's investors just sort of overreacting to a lot of that noise at the moment, I think. Realistically, inflation is still around 1% in the Eurozone and the UK. So it's still some way to go before we even hit the 2% target where central bankers even start to worry about it. 
And yes, in the near term, there is that sort of transitory inflation pressures from low oil prices last year now feeding through to higher oil prices this year and higher petrol prices, as well as the supply shock we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. So over the next few months, we will see inflation rise, but I think it's going to be quite limited in its impact and actually probably settle around the 2% or if not below that in the longer term. So I don't think it's really something we need to be worrying about too much. Okay, well... In that case, more good news for the wealthy. But of course, we're already hearing noises from the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, particularly that eventually this crisis is going to need paying for. Um, There are more ultra high net worth individuals in the world uh, since the start of the pandemic. So are they going to be a target for uh, tax rises? Are, Are wealth taxes going to become the norm? From our attitude survey respondents, government policy and tax issues were the second and third highest concern in terms of wealth creation and wealth growth, obviously behind the ongoing pandemic. So it's on the thoughts and minds of a lot of people. And I think in the UK, we're particularly, we'll know a lot more when with the tax consultation coming out in the end of March. I think wealth taxes could be a quick and easy win for governments. Some of the people I spoke to in the report said, you know, the wealthy have fared well. Could we see now the new social order and they actually have to sort of pay back some of that in the future? As we speak to in the report, we've seen that K-shaped recovery where the wealthy have grown in number and actually fared not too badly, whereas those at the lower end of the income scale have had a lot higher job losses. I think in the US, it was something about 20% in uh, the bottom quartile compared to actually employment growth in the top earners. So there's going to be a lot of um, pressure on governments to sort of balance out the new social order. And I think it's quite an uncontentious tax with the mass population. Mm. Okay, Andrew, I want to talk to you about investing as a passion and and a rise of philanthropy, something you touch on a lot. We saw Dolly Parton partly funding the Moderna vaccine. Uh, Jeff Bezos has been heavily involved in investing in combating climate change. We've always had philanthropy, but it feels to me like we're seeing the wealthy increasingly intervene in areas that used to be solely the grounds of the government. What's going on and what does it say about the way that the wealthy choose to spend their money? Good question, Patrick. I mean, it's something that we've tracked in the Wealth Report for a while, and we have a section about investments of passion. Philanthropy to many high net worth individuals is their ultimate ultimate passion. You've given a few examples. But it's something we've tracked. Governments seem to have this increasing inability to really deliver a lot of what their population is is requiring. And it seems to me that more and more wealthy individuals are taking it on themselves to provide that whether it's you know curing major infectious diseases in Africa, which Bill Gates is is really um, keen on, or whether it's conservation in Africa or sustainability issues in other parts of the world, I think it's just an acknowledgement that governments cannot deliver what everybody needs them to do. And coming back to cities, we're increasingly seeing the agenda run by cities rather than central governments to solve many of the problems like pollution, congestion. Um, in these cities which we're, which we're, we're talking about. Just to add to that, I mean, a lot of the contention around the whole wealth tax idea is that the wealthy could direct their funds directly to some of these causes rather than it going through the taxation system. For example, Jeff Bezos has committed $10 billion to fight climate change over the next few years. So you can see how it's directly impacting. And same with the Dolly Parton story and 
committing money to the Moderna vaccine uh, development. So they're actually funneling it directly into these efforts. And some may argue that that's a better use for the money. But without the taxation, potentially, they might not be so inclined to do it. Although our wealth report says almost 50% have increased philanthropic activity in the last year alone. And healthcare is unsurprisingly one of the top on the agenda with about 80% saying that they're looking to help for disease prevention and healthcare. Given the pandemic, this has really come to the forefront of people's minds and made it even more something they want to do. Mm-hmm. So a fairly benign environment for the for the wealthy, again, moving through the next 12 months, but perhaps the looming sceptre of wealth taxes. So we can probably expect more philanthropy, more investment in real estate as well. Which markets are likely uh, to see most of that? Real estate is also one of those things. If investors are worried about the prospects of inflation in the longer term, real estate is seen as quite a, a stable investment in terms of that. If you're looking on commercial side or the buy-to-let market, you know, rents generally Uh, not always, rise either ahead or in line with inflation. So it's seen as a good hedge against inflationary pressures. So real estate tends to fare well when the uh, prospects for inflation are looking higher. I was just going to add add to that. I mean, the the pandemic has seen a a huge focus on new exciting areas of real estate. We're seeing a lot more investment into life sciences and obviously people working from home, shopping more from home, having more food delivered to home has been a huge boon to the logistics sector. So we're seeing these new commercial investment real estate sectors um, becoming much more attractive to high net worth individuals. Okay. To round off, uh, as we always do, I want to get a couple of under the radar stories, can be in the Wealth Report, can be externally, uh, but on this topic uh, that you think uh, people should be aware of and that are going to be influential over the coming months. Flora, I'll start with you. Mine's a slightly different one and takes uh, a lead from the Wealthport luxury and also investment trends is looking at the idea of cryptocurrencies and crypto assets and how the market for that crypto art, which you don't physically own, it's only a digital asset, is absolutely exploded at the beginning of the year. You know, a lot of money is going into cryptocurrencies as some are seeing it as a hedge against that potential inflation as well. But in the crypto art, sales topped over $60 million in a month earlier this year compared to 250000 a year earlier. You know, the market has absolutely exploded. And I think it's something that'll be interesting to watch in the future. Is this long-term investors as well or is this, you know, speculation? I think it's a bit of both. Some may be going into the market looking for that speculation and a, a little bit of a quick win. But a lot of it is going to be more of the long-term holders who believe in the value of cryptocurrencies and crypto assets in the long term. So they're going into that market as more of a store of value and expecting the prices to rise. In the report, we touched on the fact that is it Tyler Vinkovos uh, estimates that Bitcoin could make 500000 in a few years' time. So it's that longer-term value prospects. Mm. The evergreen search for more things to invest in. Andrew, how about you? What have you got for us? I think it ties in slightly with what Flora has just said. I mean, I've tracked luxury investments for about the past decade and I have absolutely no idea what crypto art is. But that just shows the current young generation is thinking about things in a completely different way. And that echoes throughout the wealth report, whether it's succession, whether it's investment, whether it's attitudes to sustainability. That's that's the sort of thing that I've really taken out of the report. I don't think actually a lot of people really recognise just how differently the younger generation is thinking about a whole array of different things. I mean, they're paying $100,000 for a Pokemon card. I mean, this is a completely different way of thinking that we're seeing here. And is that really investing in the way you might invest in wine 
for value reasons or is that more, is that sentimentality? I mean, people have always invested in a sentimental kind of way. People who collect classic cars, when they've got some money, tend to buy the cars that they had on the posters in their bedroom bedroom walls when they were younger. So sentimentality has always been there. But it's just, as Flora said, a whole different way of investing. You're not even owning physical assets now. Your your art might might be held on the held on the blockchain somewhere that you can't can't even can't even see. So it's just completely, completely different way of doing things. And I think the traditional investment sector probably hasn't cottoned onto that yeah. yet. I look forward to the Pokemon Card Investment Index in next year's report, Andrew. Look, that's all we've got time for. Thank you to Flora and Andrew for joining me today. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, thank you very much, Patrick. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note. It goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. See the show notes for more details. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. Intelligence Talks.